I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live, Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on the Para-X Radio Network. Welcome, this is Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole, and you are here with my fine co-host, Jason Colwell, and I am Andrea Vitimus, in case you were wondering, we plaster our names all over the websites and our show. Um, Tonight we have a very special guest, and and I'm happy to have her on the show, because uh, this is a topic I'm interested in occasionally when I have time, Um, but... um, the topic tonight is actually on the Kemetic religion, and the expert we got today actually has formal education uh, and actual master's degree in Egyptology, and if I said it wrong, I'm sorry. Um, she leads a church. I have to look this up because, again, everyone knows I kind of am scatterbrained after work. But she actually uh, leads a Kemetic orthodoxy in the House of Nezer. And I might have said it wrong, and I apologize. Um, and uh, as well as that, uh, she is an initiated mambo. And without further ado, uh, she's actually uh, started the group, which will become the Kemetic Orthodoxy in 1988. So she has been doing this a little while, more than a little while, for a long time. Uh, and without further ado, this is uh, Reverend Tamron. How are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the worship and study of in ancient Egypt and the religion of ancient Egypt? The study came first. I was interested in Egypt even when I was really small. Uh, the very first thing I was interested in was actually astronomy, and I wanted to be an astronaut. I was born on the day that they landed on the moon. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, in July 1969, so... Astronauts were a thing when I was a kid, and one of my aunts at some point got me a book. I don't even remember what book it was anymore, but it was a book that talked about stars and various things having to do with stars and mentioned the pyramids, and so all of a sudden I was interested in Egypt. And I had been interested in Egypt for a really long time. Uh, At some point in my teen years when I was questioning religion in general, after my grandfather died, some things happened that made me think about whether or not I was in the religion I wanted to be in or not, and you know what I thought about God, what I thought about spirit and general things. And at that time, uh, I was probably about 15, I made the acquaintance of Lady Olivia Robertson, who founded a group called the Fellowship of Isis, which is a, it's a network. It's strictly a network for people who worship goddesses. And I had written her a letter. I'd heard about her, and I'd written her a letter just out of curiosity saying, wow, is it really true? that people still worship Isis. She wrote me back and she said, yes, you know, there are thousands of people in the world who worship feminine forms of deity and various things. And we started a conversation that went on for years and years. We're still friends. Um, She's a lovely person. And part of that, as part of that discussion, I started to think about Egyptian religion in more than a scholarly way. I started to think about things like, well, why is it that these gods are no longer worshipped? Is it that they're not suitable or that they don't exist? Or is it simply an accident of history? You know, if Cleopatra had won the Battle of Actium, will we all be worshipping Isis? I think no. So I was kind of curious. And I started to look into it. And eventually I went back to school 
after my first degree I actually got was in writing and I had worked in the media for some time but I had always been interested in Egyptology. I had taken some classes from the Field Museum in Chicago and my teacher there encouraged me to go back to school and get an Egyptology degree so I did. And I learned. And, and that was that was a master's degree that took you six years, so it was not a small commitment. Um, actually, I have two master's degrees. Oh, well, there you go. See, there you go. Two, one each for three years. Uh, the first one is strictly in Egyptology, and I got it at the University of Chicago. And the second one I got in Coptic studies, which is actually the later period of Egyptian history, basically the transition period between what you consider Egyptian paganism and Egyptian Christianity. Huh. Sorry, I got two two master's degrees in Egyptology. Then, yeah. I'm working on my doctorate right now. I'm trying to connect the two. I'm trying to figure out what parts of Coptic Christianity, which does still exist, yes. and it's actually quite popular in Egypt. Um, there are things that they do. I've attended some of their masses, and there are lots of things that they do that they claim come from antiquity. That they basically kept them and Christianized them. And having gone and seen some of the masses, I agree, they're real. And that's part of what my study is about. I'm specifically looking at liturgical music. They claim that some of the hymns and the music that they sing, the tunes, the, the harmonies and the music themselves come from antiquity, and then the words were changed to make them more Christian. That's oh, their... That, I'm trying that to prove... That would be an awesome study. Yeah, I'm trying to see whether it's true or not. I mean, I don't, I, at this point, I'm not even entirely certain I will be able to prove it, but there's certainly a lot of connection, a lot of things that were kept. Christianity changed Egypt, but it didn't really trash the earlier traditions in some of the ways that Christianity did in other places. They really you know, it's that. That's rather ironic, considering that Egypt religion may have inspired the Abrahamic faiths early on. Yes, it is. It actually is. It sort of comes full circle. Now, I don't think a lot of listeners, because uh, although a lot of listeners know about paganism, uh, the, and a lot of we have a lot of ghost hunters, and we've done a lot of ceremonial magic shows, and even a few voodoo shows. I don't know that uh, people generally know what you would do for the Egyptian faith. Maybe you could. Uh, outline some of the key tenets for us uh, to understand how how it fits in. Okay, well, Egyptian religion, uh, the ancient religion, the pre-Christian religion, um, <clears throat> it it existed for four or five thousand years, and, and longer than that if you go back into into pre-dynastic times, or even uh, at one point I helped out with a study that was being done at a site that was ten thousand years old, and they had some of the early symbols and images of our religion. So maybe it went back that far, we don't really know. But it is effectively, it is a polytheism. There are lots of gods. It's an unusual form of polytheism. It's a little different than some of the polytheisms that your listeners might be um, familiar with because while the gods are all separate beings, they're totally separate beings, at the same time, occasionally they can be merged into sort of a godness or a team unified god or sometimes the gods will actually mesh together in specific forms one form or two forms for example we have two gods called Amun and Ra and they are sun gods from different parts of ancient Egypt there is a point in Egyptian history where they become the same god and we call that god Amun-Ra and if that isn't enough to bend your brain then there's this idea that while Amun-Ra exists Amun and Ra still exist as well. All three of them become existent. They're just all different. That's a different kind of polytheism. I mean, in Greece, you never have Zeus and Hermes ever become the same guy. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. Your brain just, logic is A or B, and it can never be A and B both at the same time. So that's interesting. I, I guess I myself would have just taken that at face value as a historical difference, but you're actually looking at it from an esoteric view that these are three specific callable deities. They are. And it's actually okay. in that particular mode, if you're thinking about it symbolically, it's actually more similar to Hinduism. Hindus do this too. I was just thinking that that this yeah, happens a lot in Hinduism. The gods be forms of each other. Like you'll have a god who is an avatar of Vishnu, or you could say that all the gods are forms of Brahman. That can happen. And it, it's sort of like that. It's a it's a what we call a modified polytheism or a soft polytheism. 
it doesn't deny that all of the gods are separate, but it also admits that occasionally there are symbolic, esoteric, deliberate reasons that the gods might merge, and it might not be permanent. It's it's kind of interesting. You can you can think about it all day if you like. But mostly the religion is it's more or less a well there actually there are two religions. There's a formal religion called the state religion, which has ancient texts. We can translate them out of hieroglyphs, they have directions, they tell you how to do things. Uh, they're very, very formal rituals that involve uh, invocations and prayers and offerings and things like that. And then there's also what we would refer to as personal piety or a personal religion where people can make devotions in any way they like. They can just pray or they can leave an offering or they can go outside and contemplate some form of nature that's related to a god. Uh, it's really not limited. It, it can be any form that you think that it takes. And both of those forms of the religion are valid and important. One is not better than the other. So would this be held true from a <clears throat> from a more historical stance in antiquity? This is how it would have been done from your research? Or yes. is that more? Okay. It's it, what we're doing here. Uh, incidentally, I do need to qualify that there are a number of different forms of Egyptian derivative religion being form, being practiced today. There are quite a few different people doing things. There are people inside Wicca who are honoring Egyptian gods, but they're doing it in a Wiccan framework. There are a bunch of New Age people who are doing things with Egyptian gods. There are several different kinds of what we would call Reconstructionist Kemetic religion, where we're looking at ancient Egyptian material. Incidentally, the word Kemet, where groups are calling themselves Kemetic, Kemet comes from a hieroglyphs. It's one of the old names of Egypt. Ah. And it so. gets into English through the word alchemy, which I mentioned to you guys before the show. Um, alchemy is an English word from the Arabic word alchemy, meaning from Egypt. It's kind so. of it's kind of interesting because one of the things that you you'd mentioned is that there are actual you know Wiccans who are working with uh, the various Egyptian pantheon. For those of you who have listened to our shows with Poke Runyon and some of the ceremonial magicians, it's, it's very clear that the Golden Dawn uh, used a lot of the Egyptian yes. Oh, yes. Um, um, magics a lot and integrated that a lot into their core things. But you had an interesting experience actually starting off in Wicca um, mm -hmm. that led towards this route that maybe you could tell, tell people, because I think people always are interested. How do people get into these other religions? I did. I actually, after I, you know, what I told you before about being interested in why the Egyptian religion stopped being practiced, I had actually decided that, you know, since it had stopped being practiced, obviously it wasn't being practiced. And so I went off and looked at other things. And briefly, I was involved with the Golden Dawn group. And I actually, most of the Egyptian stuff, I couldn't get my head around it because it was mostly intellectual. It was referring to the gods as forms or archetypes. And for me, they were very real. They were very real beings. So I just, I just couldn't get my head around it. So I didn't, I didn't stick with that for very long. I appreciated it, but it wasn't, wasn't my flavor, I guess. And then for a while, I was in Wicca. And when I was in Wicca, I was explicitly looking at forms that were related to parts of my parents' family. So I was looking at ancestor stuff. You know, people from Europe. I mean, my family is actually. A predominant part of my family is Native American on my mother's side. On my father's side, they come from Eastern Europe. So I was looking at European things. And I had been intending to initiate as a priest in Wicca and went to an initiation and had fully expected to be greeted by the deities of my ancestors that I had been working with. And instead, a whole bunch of Egyptian ones showed up. <laughs> it was very curious and very unexpected. Oops. Um... So, do you care to go into that some? Like, what was this experience like? It's well, really with, without going into what you're not allowed to talk about. <laughs> you sound a little nuts when you talk about it, but it, essentially, to boil it down, what had happened was that you know, all these. I, I was doing a vision quest, and I was expected to see a certain deity who was actually from Ireland, and I was supposed to talk to her and, and get her information. And instead, uh, Jehudi, who some people call Thoth is an anglicization of Greek tohote. There are no diphthongs in ancient Greek. Um, 
he showed up and said, have, could we have a word with you, please, <laughs> more or less, which was kind of strange. And, you know, when God shows up, you don't say no. So you say, okay, sure. It always goes badly when a God shows up and you go, oh, no, I'm really busy right now. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm expected to be in this other place here in Ireland. Can you, can you like, you know, move along? You know, that, that never goes well. <laughs> it, it was very strange. And so I had a conversation with um, a couple of Egyptian gods, and they said, essentially, they said that what I had been thinking all along was possible. It was possible to worship the Egyptian gods, and that they would like that. And so I finished my vision quest, and I went out to talk to my queen, and she said, what did you see? And I said, well, you're probably not going to like this, but I quit. <laughs> she said, what do you mean you quit? And I said, well, this is what happened. And to her credit, she didn't think I was nuts. And she not only gave me her blessing to go off and do this Egyptian thing, she gave me a couple of statues to start our shrine with. Awesome. It was. It was really awesome of her. And it's funny now I found out that she's also no longer with Wicca. She had some of the same problems with it that I did. It was, again, a little too intellectual and a little too... I don't want to say disrespectful because that's not the right word. But there's a sense, like even just a few minutes ago, where you said something about working with the gods. To me, I work with pencils and pens and typewriters and screwdrivers. I don't work with deity. No, deity is not a tool. And so there's just so, there was something about the mindset that got to me. Well, you know, it depends on people's individual mindsets. Too. It does. I mean, oh, it definitely. I, I work with Andrea. It doesn't mean I use them. True. I think you use me, man. I think I'm just being used. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, you see, sometimes we just lighten up the show a little with jokes, uh, but no, I mean that's that is a um, uh, a lot of. Of course, there's another aspect that a lot of people actually. Uh, Golden Dawn was a good example of this. Believe that uh, the various god forms are really just mental constructs. There are typical unconscious collective unconscious factors that people are working with mainly the most popular views for really psychological change it, it, um, and it sounds like you actually are um, taking a different approach like which is pretty radically different from the golden dawn and from what a lot of pagans actually believe and that you know there is this, these forces out there that you're communicating and, and working with and or being or they're working through you uh, or some combination thereof as opposed to the archetypical it's all in your head type of model I do think that the archetypal model is, is valid I do I just I've I have been proven otherwise let's put it that way you know once upon a time I thought that they were all in my head too and then they started doing things that I wasn't expecting and then they started doing things to other people that they weren't expecting that matched up to what they were doing with me, which said, okay, not only is it not in my head, it's not in their head either. Maybe these things really do exist. Outside verification is always, always great. It is. But that was what happened. You know, I went out and I said, well, if you want me to do this, I need to learn how. I'm not going to go make it up. I'm going to go look at the way it was done. And that took many years and along the way I ran into a lot of people who were also being called to look at it that way to step aside from the modern reinterpretation archetypal interpretation and look at precisely how it had been done now there's a pitfall there too you can get into the place where you're just trying to copy it where it's like putting on a play or being in the SEA you know where it's all the costume and the words and you know, shaking hands and saying some words. Right. You can get ideas. You have to understand why as well as what. Mm -hmm. And why takes even longer to understand what. So I, I would imagine you have to do a lot of cultural research to find the cultural relevancy of the certain rituals and why things were done the way that they were. Absolutely. And you have to actually become part of the culture if you want to do it properly. Because if you don't, then you just culturally and that's, as a Native person, that's something that was always, always forefront of my mind. I wasn't going to go out and steal somebody's religion. Oh, this religion's dead. Nobody's got it. I'm claiming it. You know, that was never my intention. 
I wanted to look at what they were doing and say, A, is this still valid? And B, if it is, how can we do it in a respectful way? And out of that, we came up with what we call comedic orthodoxy, which sometimes is a, is a controversial term because people see orthodoxy as a lot of things that aren't true. But all it means is proper teaching. So as a magician, and I think a lot of people will find interest in this, I'd like an example of both a religious form of magic in your tradition and a practical form of magic in your tradition. No, they're not. I don't know that they're necessarily different, honestly. Okay. okay. Well, do <laughs> and, tell. Uh, in the book that was mentioned earlier, I think, I wrote a book that is actually a translation of 110 ancient texts and explanations about how they're used, if people would like to use them. You can read it as a source material, you can actually use it, or you can just read it because you're interested in Egypt. It's, it's good for both things. Uh, in there, the second chapter, the entire chapter, is about a ritual of the shrine, a very basic ritual to approach the deities. And it starts out with a purification uh, to prepare oneself to be in the presence of deity. Very simple little prayers. And all of them have practical application. You use them when you go in the shrine to be before the god, but you can also use them for other times. And for example, when I moved into my new house, I said the same prayers over the water before I sprinkled the water all over my house. Now, with your um, now, I know that uh, with your practice, um, some of the things that I've read, are, of course, and, and you kind of mentioned it a little, is that one of the the key ideas is the idea of cleanliness before mm -hmm. uh, deity, and I think in my own personal reading that uh, keeps popping up with when you read, actually go back and read other things besides just the Golden Dawn Egyptology. And maybe you could talk about that a little. Well, uh, if you think about practically in Egypt, even modern Egypt, it's very, very dusty. It's a small oasis area along a river in the midst of a very, very large desert. And so most of the time things are pretty dry and pretty dirty. And people tend to be dusty. If you've ever been to Egypt, you pretty much get covered with dust the second you step off the plane and you're that way for the rest of the trip unless you are very, very judicious about keeping yourself clean. And it's something that you end up doing. You end up taking several showers a day. You end up shaking out your clothes every time you go inside or wiping off your shoes because the dust is just sort of ever-present. And the purification rituals are religious, but they're also practical. You don't want all this dust in your house. You're going to keep sleeping forever. If you do let it in, so you want to try to get as much of it off before you go into the temple as you can. But it's also the sense of the, the temple is the house of the deity, and it's an otherworldly place. So you don't want to bring too much of the everyday world in with you. So literally, part of why you're cleaning yourself is not just to make sure that you're not dirty. It's to make sure that you're not carrying in the things of the outside. It's a psychological preparation that says this thing that I'm about to do is a special thing and I'm going to do a special thing to be prepared for it. Well, it's like something that we always stress. Banish, banish, banish! Yeah, exactly. It's actually a very, very physical form of banishment. The dirt that's on your clothing becomes a literal, tangible sort of symbol of whatever you don't want to take in with you. It's just kind of very interesting because, not to go too far into it, but obviously, you know, everyone knows uh, I'm doing bath work, you know, in, in Jackson, Michigan in May, and I just, with the school, for all the school members, did bath work, which is a voodoo type thing, and again, it's a, a physical banishment of negative energies, which yeah, so, sounds very similar, actually. It can be. I mean, both both traditions ultimately are deriving from Africa, so that makes sense. It's also an indigenous belief kind of everywhere that the physical and the spiritual don't necessarily have to be completely separate, that physical things reinforce spiritual things and vice versa. But that's also why we don't just clean. It's not when we have a purification ceremony, like in the book, when I talk about you take a shower, 
that's your physical cleaning. But then you also say some prayers over the water before you put the water on yourself. So there is a spiritual component to it. It touches both. So we like to talk tech here. Uh, okay. When you're, when you're saying these prayers over the water, mm -hmm. are there any trance-inducing techniques that you're using to get into a certain state, or is it more just the ceremonious act? Um, I don't know that it's deliberately intended to be trance-inducing, but we've discovered that with repetition, it kind of becomes so. Um, I can one buy of the, that. Yeah, one of the things about the particular ritual that I put in there, we expect that people who are in our temple try to do this ritual at least once a day. Every day. You know, it's something that you establish a discipline and you do it. You don't get in trouble if you don't do it. But the more that you do it, the more benefits that you get. And there is something about after you've done this ceremony enough times that even just going to get the implements that you're going to do it with or putting on the white clothes that you wear when you do the ceremony, just doing those things will kind of put you in that zone. Well, that, that's certainly uh, been my experience, and that's been other people's experience. I mean, obviously, I mean, that's probably one of the roots of actual Western ceremonial magic is also the repetition, uh, builds the neural structures to be able to activate the energy. Um, so that, that's certainly something that we're familiar with, and, you know, we're not, uh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't frighten anyone away. I mean, uh, you know. Right, and from a magical standpoint, too, uh, for for us, for this ceremony, we have probably about 600 members in 30 different countries in the world. So at any given time, if you are doing this ritual, there's probably at least one other person somewhere else in the world doing it too. And then occasionally we'll have ceremonies, group ceremonies, or holidays or things where there are large groups of people doing it at the same time. So on a spiritual level, everybody's kind of magnifying this effect. The more people who are doing it, the more magnification the effect has, which can get kind of neat. We actually, at one point, I did an experiment with a bunch of my students, and I said, okay, this month, everybody's going to try to do this as often as they can. And lots and lots of people had never even tried it before. You know, they had the ritual, but they, for whatever reason, they decided never to do it. Started doing it at that point when other people were doing it at the same time. And it seemed to have this, this really positive effect. People got better dreams. They had better luck in their lives. Just, just sort of nice positives magnified. And it certainly can't hurt. It doesn't seem to hurt at all. Go before a deity and pray. I mean, it's, not, it's really nothing fancy. It takes about 20 minutes. It's an interesting thing is that I always tell people that um, it, it only really takes about a lot of this stuff only takes about 15 to 20 minutes and it's the daily repetition and, and it's kind of like I'm glad you're saying that because it's one of the um, it's one of the things we actually tried to stretch uh, stress early on in in the show uh, about a lot of the magical work only takes about 20 to 30 minutes a day um, stuff like that it's hard to get people to do that nowadays you know, with Twitter and 140 characters in three seconds and broadband internet, nobody wants to sit still for 20 minutes. Oh, that's so long. What will I do? Well, I mean, I think that's um, was probably a different discussion. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that um, uh, I, I think, and, and Jason, you can say this too, that, that we, we've all seen tangible benefits from of uh, the magical and spiritual work that we do, but uh, we're not spending five minutes every other week doing it. Uh, the tangible benefits come really from the daily practice. Uh, it's a point that can't really be stressed enough, actually. Yeah, you have to make it a priority. It's, it's true of anything. Now, what well, else? Go ahead, Jason. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, it's been my experience over the years and my years are limited, I will admit, but, you know, 20 minutes a day of just purely meditation can have huge impact on one's life. It really, if you really want to get started down the magical path in any one of these paths, yes, folks, you just have to set aside at least 20 minutes a day that you're going to do one thing and see how that impacts you. Mm -hmm. Once you see the results, and it's kind of like working out, you, if you walk away from it for a while, the results will decrease, and you'll find that out through experience and build from there. 
one one of the things that we we I had personally asked you to do was um, because you have a wonderful book of very beautiful hymns. Um, you should plug your book right now. So okay, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's ancient Egyptian prayer book. See, so it's it's there. You go. Um, but I, I I got a chance to get a copy of it, and I um, I thought you know uh, we had other um, priestesses come on our show and actually um, read hymns or poems or stories that they had uh, written about their faith, and I I'd ask you to come on the show if you could and give our listeners a blessing, uh, a comedic blessing. Uh, of one of your whichever blessing you would like to give our listeners who are listening um, from one of, of the hymns. Okay, I can do that. Today uh, in our Egyptian calendar is a holiday to Amun Ra, who I mentioned earlier, who is the king of the gods and a deity of the sun and kingship and power and all kinds of neat things. And prayer number 71 in the book, there are 110, but prayer 71 is a blessing from Amun-Ra that I translated out of Egyptian uh, from a, it was actually not found in Egypt, it was found in Nubia, which is now Sudan. And it was written by a Nubian king, a Kushite king. But it's really beautiful, so that was why I included it. And it was probably, I'm trying to think about when, probably about 1200 BC, so this is pretty old. And this is the prayer. O Amun-Ra, who finds the sun, swift of stride, who comes to him who calls, grant me a long life without illness. Turn back any who plot against me. Honor my mother and bless her children on earth. Grant me prosperity, a good harvest, an inundation without trouble, and may the land be good in my time. That is beautiful. I really liked that one. It was one of the ones that hit on everything and talked about family and all kinds of different neat things. It's it's interesting because we could all use a good harvest, especially, you know, a lot of people this year and such. Absolutely. Well, and once again, I kind of refer back to how this is like, the granddaddy of the Abrahamic faiths, you know. I mean, how similar was that to what we would know as a psalm out of, mm -hmm. the, you know. There are actually a couple of um, psalms that are directly derived from Egyptian hymns. Uh, some mm -hmm. of the proof of them, some of the hymns to the sun that were made to the unknown god. I bet that knowledge ruffles some feathers. Sometimes. I think, if for me, I don't. I don't think of it so much as oh, controversy. I think it's it just sort of proves all the things that all of us have in common, and there are there are certain commonalities to being human and living in a human world. Well, one of the things that uh, is is a, a little controversial is the is the kind of myths of Osiris and how a lot of Christian scholars who are not religious um, have kind of link the two uh, and how the myths of Osiris actually leads into the myths of Jesus Christ. I actually disagree. I'm one well, of the good. <laughs> well, the reason that I disagree is because for us, Osiris, who we would also call Wasir, um, Wasir is, he dies, he's killed like Jesus. But unlike Jesus, he stays dead. The reason that Wasir dies is so that the people in the land of the dead have their own king. Once death comes into the world, balance needs to exist, and they need someone to lead them as well. And so Wasir, who was previous to that time, was a living god, according to our mythology, agreed to be killed so that he could become a dead god. And he is actually a dead god. He's not a resurrected god. He's a dead god. I think... If any of our gods have anything in common with Jesus, it would be more Osiris' son, Horus, who is a savior, and he's actually called savior. It's one of his titles. And he goes out and destroys evil and protects everybody and maintains order and, and does lots of things like that. And I think he fits the model a little more. I mean, they do have in common that they're both gods who die. 
beyond that, it's really not the same. Nobody has to believe in Osiris to be resurrected in the second life. There's no, there's no sort of grace or anything kind of connected with him in that manner. He's just there. And when you go there, when you die, you get to see him or not, depending on you know, whether or not you pass your final judgment, which we do have in common with Christianity. So in the comedic faith, what is the repercussion of not passing your final judgment? Well, you cease to exist, which for us is the scariest thing possible. Any sort of punishment would be bad, but in theory, you would assume that at some point it would end and you would get to continue to exist. The worst possible thing that could happen to you would be for you to cease existing. And, and anybody who's seen the images of the final judgment, um, symbolically, they're rendered as a person's heart which is the seat of their emotions and the, their memories being weighed on a scale against a feather and the feather represents truth. The heart has to balance with the feather. It can't be too heavy and it can't be too light. Now that made it into English as well. We talked about having heavy hearts. Oh, okay. Yep, 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 that's true. You can't, you, you don't want to be too, you know, any number of things that make your heart heavy. You don't want to be too sad. You don't want to be too guilty. You don't any of these things to hold you back. But at the same time, you don't want to be too cavalier or not care about things. What's, what's valued is a balance. Being in the center of that, being able to know what's going on in your life and, and be in control of it and be responsible for it. And at the judgment, you have an opportunity to answer for those things. And the gods will look at you and say, this is your life, this is what you did. What do you have to say about it? I like to think that they're pretty forgiving. Um, they seem to be. We've never, we don't really have a, an image of angry gods. I mean, uh, uh, considering a bunch of the other gods from that part of the world, the Egyptian gods are actually a, a fairly friendly bunch. They do seem to like people, genuinely. But if you were to fail that test, there is a, a creature called Amut, which means the devourer of the dead. And Amun is depicted as a composite animal. Um, she's part hippo and part lion and part crocodile and part something else like a snake. All the things that people are afraid of. So it, it's she's this giant, dangerous thing. And the heart is given to her. And then that person doesn't exist anymore. Their memory is extinguished. That's a very scary thing for us. Well, that brings some interesting points. Um, and I think... To take a step back from that, um, maybe we should talk about the Egyptian cosmology and how people would interact with the universe in the Kemetic faith, as opposed to how people interact with the universe um, and how people interact with their soul uh, in more Abrahamic faiths. Oh man, that was a tough word. <laughs> so. But seriously, I mean, maybe uh, everything I when I when I've done my own research, it, it seems like they would have had a very different view of the soul than we do in modern times, and a very different view of generally how the universe would works. We do, and we don't. I think one of the big things that I noticed is a difference between a lot of Western thought and a lot of Egyptian thought is that we don't, despite the assumption that Egyptian religion is all about death and the afterlife, which comes directly from archaeological problems. You know, when all you dig up is tombs, you assume that people are fascinated by them. That's not necessarily true. What, what it is actually true is that the cities of ancient Egypt are pretty much underneath modern cities, so we don't have as much city evidence, but we have a lot of death evidence because the dead were buried in the desert. Um, there are a lot of people you know, in Abrahamic religions or not, that everything is about the future. Right now is not as important as the future. You know, it's, it's about your next life. It's about your karma. It's about, you know, whatever is going to happen to you later is this monolithic importance that your entire life has to be thrown towards making sure that your next life is good. You know, kind of like somebody sitting around with a cosmic scorecard and you have to make sure that you get a 54% or you're not going to get there, you know, this kind of thing. There's, there's really a heavy influence on everything in the future. And the Egyptian texts, when you look at the texts that talk about death, 
they're very straightforward about it. Uh, one of them in particular, the Har- what we call the Harper song, because it was a song, says, well, what's it like to be dead? We don't know, because nobody came back from there yet to tell us about it in a whole lot of detail. So maybe it's more important to worry about now. And there is very much a sense of the current life being more important than the future life. The future life is sort of meaningless if you live your current life so terribly that the future one won't matter, you know? It's, there's nothing wrong with this world. We don't believe in an original sin. We don't believe that this world is flawed. We don't believe that people are doomed to suffer or go through evil. Now, certainly they do, and there are lots of reasons for that, most of which have to do with human greed. But they don't have to. You're not doomed. Now, unlike Hindus, unlike Buddhists, we don't believe that people are doomed to be miserable. We believe that people often are miserable, but they're not doomed to be miserable. It's perfectly okay to be happy. It's perfectly okay to be rich. It's perfectly okay to be healthy. These are all good things that we want and would like to enjoy in our lives. And it's okay to go out and find them and celebrate and enjoy the life because there's nothing wrong with living here. It's not second best being held in advance for some future more wonderful thing. In fact, for us, our afterlife is just like here. And that's actually why, that's the main reason why Christianity caught on in ancient Egypt as well as it did. At the time that Christianity came into Egypt, Egypt was being overrun by the Romans. The Romans were colonizing it. They were taxing people to death, just, just insane amounts of taxing and laws and governmental, uh, and, and a cat. <laughs> the cat had nothing to do with it. The cat objects to the government taxing people. The cat you heard it here. That's correct. Sounds like Boston's is coming through. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but at, at the time that Christianity came into Egypt, uh, the, Ro- the Roman subjugated Egypt world was really not great. And this is a group of people who believe that their afterlife is going to be just like their current life. Well, if they don't like the current life very much, you know, who wants an, an eternity of, of Roman subjugation and all of this? And so these, the, these people came in with this new religion, and they said, hey, well, you know, we've got this religion where there's this guy, and there's heaven, and heaven's really wonderful, and people get to do great things there, and they're not limited to the stuff that you guys have been limited to for 4,000 years. And so, you know, vast majority of people just said, hey, sign me up, sounds great. <laughs> and Christian churches operated inside Egyptian temples. They would set aside a place. There is, if you ever go to Philae, which is in Aswan, which is in the southern part of Egypt, and you visit the Temple of Isis on Philae, the very front room, the front temple room, half of it is decorated with Christian crosses. They carved them into the walls over and next to the images of Isis. And the reason is that for 400 years, the Christians and the Isis priests were worshiping side by side. They were using the temple at the same time. This also sort of confounds people who are convinced that the evil, nasty Christians destroyed Egyptian religion. They really didn't. They got along quite well with each other. Uh, The very first person to make ancient Egyptian religion um, illegal was a Roman, but he was not a Christian. His name was Septimius Severus, and he was a pagan. He, in one, around 170 AD, he made Egyptian religion illegal and required that everybody honored the Roman gods and the cult of the Caesars instead. Um, Theodosius was the man who shut down the temples in the 5th century, and he was a Christian, but it wasn't necessarily because of Christianity that he did it. Uh, They were more concerned about the fact that the southern temples were being overrun with large numbers of Nubians who were not Roman friends or Byzantine friends or friends of anybody, for that matter. And it was more of a political movement than a religious movement. You know, there was there was a religious involvement, but it wasn't it wasn't the sort of thing that people have built it up in their heads. You know, like Cecil B. DeMille with you know, Roman soldiers running in and stabbing all the pagan priestesses and stuff. I mean, this really didn't happen. This this was not the way it happened. It was gradual. A lot of it was mutual. A lot of Egyptians were very happy to convert. And as a you know, as I've been finding in my studying, they kept a lot of their old things. A lot of Coptic Christianity keeps a lot of the ancient symbols. They just add different meanings to them. It is a common misconception that Christianity came through and was purely responsible for a lot of government uh, upheaval, a lot of traditional upheaval. 
where, yes, from a historical stance, most of the upheaval was government-based with mm-hmm. the facade of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So it was, and you know, it was in some places. In some places, when the Christians came in, they really did wreck the place. That is absolutely true. It not necessarily the case in Egypt. Things in Egypt were far more complicated. We've got about 15 minutes um, left for the show. And uh, I know one of the things you had mentioned is that uh, there's the state religion that uh, anyone can do, uh, not anyone can do, but and then there's also a version where they, people are doing uh, devotionals themselves of various flavors. And maybe you could just walk through if people have a calling to some of the Egyptian gods, um, some things you would do if you were just starting out to get uh, more into it. Okay. Well, the first thing that I always, always, always recommend is to get to know the ancestors. And even in ancient Egypt, every house, not every house had a shrine to a god, but every house had a shrine to their ancestors. And you have found the images. Um, usually they would have just a, a plain statue. Sometimes it's just a bust. It's just a head and shoulders. Sometimes it's an actual statue of a man or a woman. It doesn't have a name on it. It's not any specific person, but it's just an image of a person. And they would put it in a little niche somewhere in the living quarters and put flowers in front of it and, and on certain days burn incense for it and say prayers to the ancestors that it represents. Um, you don't have to do anything that formal. You can start, you know, some people come to me and they say, well, I, I don't really have a very good relationship with my ancestors. I don't know where to start. Um, the greatest place to start actually is genealogy. Find out something about your family. If you can, go to older members of your family, your parents, your grandparents, aunts, uncles, anybody. Ask them, you know, where do we come from? What do we know about the people that we come from? And if you can find out actual names, that helps. If not, if you find out that your family's from you know, Croatia, find out something about Croatia. What were those people like? Where did they live? What kind of things did they believe in? What sorts of things did you get from them you know when you think about the things that you've gotten or learned from your family what, what sorts of things do they provide you you exist because of them it's a little harder if you're adopted uh, we know that you know you don't always know who, where you came from you might have some vague idea but you and i much but the nice thing about being adopted actually is that you end up with two families you have the ancestors of your blood and then you also have the ancestors of your adopted family you get them too and if you think about it if your parents are your ancestors and then their parents and their parents and their parents, if you sit down mathematically and you look at that after you know, 10, 15 generations, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that you're related to. And you may be related to a lot of other people that you know, maybe distantly. Eventually, we're probably all related to everybody. You don't have to know your ancestors. That's the other thing. Some people say, well, I don't have anybody in my family who died. I don't know anybody in my family who died. You don't have to know them personally. It's a little harder to get to know them if you don't have names to work with, but you can do that when you go to your ancestor shrine or you sit down to have a conversation with the ancestors and just say hi to whoever you are, you know, all the ancestors I know and all the ones I don't know. Uh, for us, we maybe once a week, we'll sit down, light a candle, say the ancestors' names, maybe offer them some things that they liked in life for me. Uh, that's coffee. I have a couple of ancestors that I talked to quite a bit who really liked coffee. My grandfather was very, very fond of lemon drops. So I'll put some lemon drop candies out for him. Um, some ancestors don't want to be bothered. You might talk to them a few times and then maybe you'll dream about one and they'll say, I don't want you talking to me. Or, <laughs> you, know, or, or you just get a sense of that it's not appropriate. Um, one of the things that has sort of been consistent with that a lot of native ancestors do not want to be bothered depending on what nation they come from. There is a tradition that you don't talk to the dead as long as you're living and you know you should respect that, don't push it on them. Also, a lot of my students who are, who are current or former practicing Jews, um, a lot of forms of Judaism don't want you talking to the dead for various reasons and sometimes those ancestors will say, look, stop talking to me. That's okay. You know, if you have ancestors who were Calvinists and they're totally against anything that remotely resembles necromancy and they tell you, leave me the heck alone, don't push it. You'll be surprised, though. You'll find ancestors who do want to talk to you. You'll start dreaming about them. It gets, it gets interesting. 
And when you start from there, then you can start talking to gods. You could go your whole life without never talking to a god and still have a positive spiritual experience because there are so many ancestors. And they used to be human, so they understand human needs. It's one of the things I kind of never understood why people go to gods with mundane things like I need a job or I want my boyfriend back or something like that. I mean, what, what do gods know about jobs? <laughs> gods don't know what it's like to be unemployed, but, but ancestors do. Except in American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Right. Then in that book, they, they understood what it is to be unemployed. That's <laughs> um, kind of interesting uh, because we've had numerous shows on the ancestors, actually. So, again, they're stressing a lot of the same points. And if if anyone is listening and didn't, they go back to our old shows on deeperdowntherabbithole.com or DDT rh.com if you remember right around halloween we did two shows and we did an ancestral meditation so you got it right there and at least from a voodoo perspective how to set up your altars um and the shrines so if you want an actual hypnosis to actually kind of ease you ease the communication a little it's in our show archives so i just thought i would throw that in there it's excellent now get to know your dead people you can never know enough dead people there is never enough help in the other world. And I think that's that's a very positive place to start. After that, I like to not be pushy with the gods. Some people, you know, oh, I like this god and I'm going to worship this god. That's fine. They might not respond to you. You shouldn't be too surprised by that. Some gods do not take well to being ordered around. Some do. Some just sort of shake their head and go, okay, or they're pushing you to be pushy because they want to talk to you. That also happens. But I would I would try to approach, as long as you're approaching sincerely, it seems to work all right. As I said, our gods are a friendly bunch, and they don't seem to be terribly off-putting. Even some of the more ferocious ones will listen if you come to them with an open heart and try to offer them the things they like. Uh, they do, we do find that they do seem to respond more readily to the traditional things that they like, traditional offerings and things like that. Not that they don't answer to modern things. I think just the ancient things have the benefit of, you know, they received this thing for 6,000 years, so they're familiar with it. And then sometimes they just show up. And sometimes they just show up, exactly. And they do what they want. I, I think as long as you start from that perspective that you're, you're, dealing with deities. You're dealing with beings that are from another plane of existence, another world, however you want to refer to that, who are, I don't believe that they're omnipotent, but I do believe that they are so much more powerful than we are that they may as well be. They're on a very different level than we are. They don't have to listen to anything we say. They could squish us lad if they wanted to. Thankfully, they don't most of the time. I think as long as you approach it knowing that and you don't walk in, you know, trying to boss them around or something like that, I think you're fine. Um, I wouldn't use too many of the ceremonial approaches like, you know, you don't ever want to put an Egyptian god in a triangle of art or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's just disrespectful. It's, they're not our servants. They're not play toys. They're not flunkies. Approach Reverend them Tamara. and they should come back, you know? Reverend Tamara, I just have to ask, okay, do you know someone who made the mistake of trying to put an Egyptian god in a triangle? I, I was just thinking that because, or tried because to it around I'm, thinking, and, I'm just thinking, man, she wouldn't have mentioned that unless she has a story to go with that. Because I actually know someone who asked me if he could, and, and, I, and I told him that I really didn't think it was a good idea. I don't, I don't know whether he actually did or not. I didn't follow up, but I was kind of afraid to. <laughs> It's kind of like, uh, yeah, you go ahead and try that. Uh, take pictures, put it on the internet, maybe put a YouTube video that I can watch from really far away. <laughs> well, I, I think it might also just kind of be impractical. And it's like trying to put something that's the size of Russia into a juice glass. I mean, it's just, I just don't think it's going to fit. It, the, the gods are immense. I, I think even when we do have experiences of them, we probably aren't experiencing all of them. I suspect that if we could experience them as they are, we would not be sane anymore because I just don't, we don't operate on the same level. I just don't, 
do you find that as you're moving forward in your practice that uh, maybe you get to experience more and more glimpses of the different uh, Egyptian gods that you work with? Sometimes. Sometimes I think I've already seen enough, and I ask them to tone it down a little bit. I keep being reminded of the, uh, there's a story, there's a Hindu story in the Bhagavad Gita, I don't know if you've read it, but it's the story of Krishna meeting, meeting a man named Arjuna. And at some point, Arjuna realizes that he's talking to a god and says, I'd like to see you as you are. And Krishna says, no, 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 you really don't want that. And he's like, no, I do, I really do. So Krishna does whatever he has to do and, and suddenly reveals himself in all of his amazing glory. And the very next thing that happens is that Arjuna is on the floor of his chariot bawling his eyes out saying, please make it stop. But and I think that that's, I tend to think that all gods are like that. And that's why they're gods and we're not, basically. <laughs> but they're just, they're just way bigger than we can comprehend. And that's okay. You know, they, can, they can handle that. We handle so- is is there room in this this pantheon? Something I came across was the time of the Aten. Mm-hmm. Um, there was Akhenaten who tried to make a monotheistic religion. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, he didn't make a monotheistic religion. That's another misconception. Oh, really? The actual name of that god is Raharekti, who is Shu, and his name of Aten. So that's five different gods being named right there. Oh, wow. All being manifest together. Um, what what Akhenaten did that was a heresy was not to suggest that people should worship that particular god. If you actually look at what he did, he made worshiping gods in general illegal. You couldn't worship the Aten either. You were supposed to worship him, and then he would worship the Aten for you. He put himself into the place as the divine proxy. And in, in a religion where you can believe in anything in any form, to be told that you may only do it this way, that's a heresy. He and was he was trying to put himself as a as spiritual godfather. Like, you want to talk to the family, you got to talk to me first. Right. Well, he actually took that a step further, and they made it a cult of personality around his family. In the city, they they left this town where they were because they couldn't fight with the priesthood there because the priesthood wasn't hearing any of it. So they founded a new town where they only had his temples and they only did his things and everybody in the town was one of his people. So it all worked out well. But in his town, the depictions of the gods that were made were actually depictions of him and his wife and his family. They replaced the gods with them. They said, we are now your gods on earth. You will worship us. We will, you know, we're the only ones who are good enough to talk to gods. You deal with us. And that didn't go over very well. And it didn't even go over very well in his town. Um, some of the archaeological things that we have from his town, there are some images that were in the houses. They had little shrines to Akhenaten and his wife and their family. And on the backs of them, they've carved in images of old gods. Like they had them hidden in the house where nobody was looking. Oh, sweet. So it's very interesting. It, it's just they, they kind of, you know, there were people in that town who paid it lip service and said, okay, you know, as long as you're alive, we'll do it this way. But as soon as you're dead, we're getting rid of it because this ain't right. But that's, that's really what he did that was wrong. It wasn't, you may only worship one God. It was, you may only worship me, and I'll worship God for you. All right, Reverend Tamar, we have about two minutes left. So how can people get in contact with you if they want to? And, of course, you know, the Egyptian prayer book, Amazon, will have it on our website today, so yep, you can look it. it up. It has its own website, um, egyptianprayers.com. That's one word. Um. Uh, our temple, the House of Netcher, which is the main temple of Kemetic Orthodoxy, you can find it at netcher.org, N-E-T-J-E-R.org. Uh, you can find something about the religion itself at kemet.org, K-E-M-E-T.org. Um, that website's being updated. It's like 10 years old, but it works for now. Um, we're around. Uh, if people look up my name, they should be able to find me. Um, I actually have my own website at demrosuda.com. So I do things other than Egypt, as you mentioned. But tonight I'm talking about Egypt, so that's a good thing. Well, thank you for coming on the show. If you could stay on the line just for a second. I'd I like will. To, I, I would like to thank the Illuminus for the music again. Uh, it's great that you wrote the music for us. We thank you every week, and, and we'll take it on out with the Illuminist. 
Uh, next week, we may have something special because it's our one-year anniversary, but we'll leave it as a surprise. I don't think it's next week. It might be two weeks, but we'll see. You'll find out over our webpage. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a good night.